don't want you to feel too bad about this uh, message today. If I remember correctly, on Mother's Day, I preached a sermon entitled The Reality of Hell. So, obviously, when I set these things up, I don't, uh, I don't look at the secular celebration days. Uh, <clears throat> maybe I ought to start doing that. But this is appropriate for men. Uh, it is it is something that all of us uh, really need to listen to, specifically uh, the men here. I'm going to read the scripture text in the context of the message itself. Let me remind you, though, before beginning this message, the context for the message series is spiritual warfare, and for the particular series in June are the cultural strongholds that grab hold of our lives. Now, let me remind you what a, cultural, what a stronghold is. A stronghold is a diversion on the way out of maturity that promises that we can get there by shortcut or that we don't need really to go there at all. That somehow we can have something in our lives that will replace what God has for us. They are weaknesses in our lives, perennial weaknesses, that... Um, Satan inhabits, and that when we are frustrated, we naturally relapse or regress into. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the cultural stronghold of leading a life of power and politics instead of a life of influence. You know, it is the greatest thing of all to be an example and to lead an exemplary life, and with patience and looking to take the log out of your own eye to lead such a life that after years and years and decades and decades, someone may look at you and say, you know, I'd love to have in my life what that person has in their life. But in this culture, that's too slow for us, and so we revert to manipulation. Or what if the person never changes because of me? Maybe I could just help them somewhat. And so we relapse from being people of influence to being people of power and of politics and of manipulation. That's a stronghold we have. Last week I talked about instead of fixing what God had given us and being stewards of the great gifts that God had given us, we tend to run off and get a new fix because it takes too much patience to really build a relationship over years or to build a job over years so maybe I can make it faster here and get to where I'm going here faster. And so I will get a new fix. I will get something that makes me feel good. I'm not specifically concerned with fixing what I have, but I'm specifically concerned with relief. And so instead of fixing what I have, I'll get a new fix. This week, I want to talk about replacing the cumulative, patient relationship that makes love with the momentary act of having sex. Now, again, as with all of these things, it is not, the the stronghold is not bad in itself. It is only bad when we try to live there and we try to put into that stronghold what can only be gotten by the road to maturity, by the long and narrow road, the road of a disciplined life. And therein lies the emptiness. Now, one of the church fathers, Origen, said that in interpreting the Scripture, 
<clears throat> just as man is made up with a body and a soul and a spirit, so there are three levels of Scripture. Three levels of interpretation of Scripture, I'm sorry. One is the literal physical level. And another is the interpretation that is the moral, ethical, sociological level. And the third is the spiritual, the theological level of interpretation. I would like to take this subject this morning and divide it into those three aspects and talk about the great gift of our sexuality and how our culture coaxes us to substitute a mere physical relationship for what God really wanted us to have within the context of our sexuality. Now, first of all, let me talk about the physical aspect. Our culture is great at trying to coax us into the thought that we can, by our body, answer our own desires. That we can, number one, separate the physical from the spiritual. I don't know about you, I love to read statistics. I'm going to have plenty of statistics in this message, as a matter of fact. But all of the statistics I've read recently are a contrast in dynamics because all of them I've read says that belief in God is at an all-time high in America. But so is the sexual acting out at an all-time high in America. How could those two things be simultaneously at an all-time high in America? Well, very easy, if you divide them. And if you say, one really doesn't have to do with the other. I can go do this and still believe in God. I can do, go, go do this and still have a relationship with God. See? So therefore, it's only by division, and it's only by the great delay in consequences, that we can be relaxed enough to begin to believe that God really doesn't care. That it's okay with Him. You know, he's, he, Jesus had all temptations like we have all temptations. And so we have this culture that draws us into the physical temptations. I don't know how many of you watch TV, but I know many of you do, and I know that you see the commercials on TV. Have you noticed the commercials are not about the product, but about the people that are shown on TV? You understand? When you, when you were watching uh, the NBA Finals and the beer commercials came on, good heavens. Anybody that thinks a 90-foot bottle of beer is about beer has another thing coming, especially when it's got all the girls in the bikinis dancing all around it. That's not about liquid. That's about being accepted and being gratified and being fulfilled in your desires. That's what that's about. I don't know how many of you watch soap operas. I hope not too many. It is garbage. It is pure garbage. In practically every minute of a soap opera's screening, there are references to sexuality. Would you like to guess at the percentage of references about sexuality that have to do with sexual relationships for unmarried people or, or people who are not married to each other? 94% of those references are to those kinds of relationships. You see, we are being coaxed by the media into gratifying our desires. I don't need to tell you the statistics about teenage sexuality. Fifty percent of all teenage girls 
are sexually active. Those are the statistics. Um, um, 90% of 19-year-old girls in college who are not married, supposedly, by the statistics I've read, are sexually active. That seems unbelievable to me. I mean, I must be living in a cave somewhere. It just seems... But that's what it says. But the way that it's okay for us to do that, the way the culture says it's okay for us to do this, is by what? Well, I know there's diseases out there, you know. As a matter of fact, the rate is that 30 to 40% of teenagers that are sexually active will contract venereal disease. There are some 19 different kinds. Not a few of them are incurable. Two of them are fatal. 30 to 40%. But, But the culture says if you just practice safe, sex. See? Well, what is that? God told us all about safe sex a long time ago, didn't he? Had to do with a husband and a wife staying true to one another. God's got the only safe sex there is. But it doesn't... See, we, we want to separate the two and we want to be able to, to just concentrate just on the physical, and fool ourselves into thinking that instead of a relationship, we can have a sexual experience. And we've almost, almost convinced ourselves. Of the statistics of single people, the morning after they've had sex with a new partner, the statistics are these. Only 14% of those people get up the next morning and wonder whether or not they are committed to a new relationship. 62% of those people get up and the first thought that crosses their mind is, have I contracted a disease? Do you understand what that says about the thingness of the other person? About the selfishness of that gratification? They don't even worry about the relationship. They're worried about the disease. You can't You cannot separate the physical. Even though we try again and again and again, we cannot separate the physical. That's the first thing I want us to learn this morning. You cannot separate the physical from the moral and the spiritual. You cannot do it. In the first place, God says, He will repay. If you look in in, uh, uh, Psalm 50, let me share this with you. It's talking about the wicked, and it's talking about a lot of wickedness, and and sexuality is just part of wickedness. But in verse 16 it says, To the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? Now this is to the believers he's talking to, to us. For you hate discipline. And you cast my words behind you. Well, I know God says I shouldn't do it, but I'm just going to do it anyhow. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him. And when you associate, and you associate with adulterers. Now look at verse 21. This verse just blows me away. These things you have done, and I kept silence. Now listen to this. So you thought that I was just like you. But I will reprove you. It's there. For those of you from a very simple background who want a very simple statement, 
Say, just tell me like it is. I've just told you like it is. It doesn't matter how much you rationalize and how much you think God doesn't care and how much you think God's not involved and how much we think God has the same values we do. He's not. God's values are His and He will reprove. doesn't say might. doesn't say for a per, per, certain percentage. It says He will. Now let me show you one other thing. If for you, those of you who think you can keep your physical life apart from your spiritual life, turn to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20. This is not about sexuality. This is something as simple and as innocuous as eating. Eating. Look at what it says here. Now certainly eating has no spiritual implications, does it? Look at what it says. Well, let's start with verse 18. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? See the link? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Now, what's he doing there? He's saying that your belief system is beside the point. If you partake of an act that is dedicated to something other than God, you are a sharer in the spiritual aspect of that act. There is no such thing as the physical separated from the moral and from the spiritual. Remember, whatever has to do with your body has to do with your spirit. Now, let's go to the second phase. Let's go to the moral phase. And all you mainliners will get in on this. Mainline churches love, love morals. They love ethics and so on and so forth. And my, my wife went to a Methodist church, grew up in a Methodist church. She said, the only thing I ever learned in that youth group was not to kiss on the first date. The only thing I ever learned. And I'm still mad because of it. <laughs> I started to zoom in and she looked at me and she said, let's pray. I went, oh, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> I was going to do that. I was going to do that. Anyhow, she learned it well. It's important to know that our sexuality is not just something that God has spoken about. Human sexuality is spoken to by every civilization, by every culture that has ever inhabited this, the face of this earth. There are strictures and restraints on sexuality in all cultures. And so, therefore, it is a universal, sociological, anthropological, moral, ethical question. Sigmund Freud, in his book, Civilization and Its Discontents, said that all of mankind has repressed the very thing, the very instinct necessary to its preservation. Why? Because of this. That just the act of human sexuality, if you don't even regard the Word of God, just the act of sexuality and the drive toward immediate gratification of our sexual desires brings up a rivalry and a violence and a change in the relationship itself. People all over the world who have never heard of the Lord Jesus Christ know that from their own experience because all of us are wired needing 
moral strictures. All of us. Well, how does that come closer, more personally? How does that affect me? What happens if I get something out of sequence? What happens if I indulge in the sexual aspect of my relationship with this other person, then someday maybe get married? What's the big deal? Well, other than being totally outside of God's will and totally vulnerable to the physical and emotional things that can happen to you, let me tell you what the big deal is. When I counsel people upon their getting married, it never ceases to amaze me how plain it is to me that they have been sexu- whether or not they've been sexually active. You know why? Because the questions I ask them about the spiritual aspects of their relationship, about the emotional togetherness that they have, about the um, psychological bonding that they need to go through before they really seriously have a chance at a stable marriage. All of that, if they have been sexually active, is so stunted as to almost be non-existent. You know why? Because our sexual lives are so powerful. They're good. God gave them to us. But they are so powerful that if we get them out of sequence, the rest of the foundational, important aspects of our relationship will not develop fully. They will be stunted so that we will have trouble along those more foundational avenues on down the line. You can have wonderful, long conversations with your girlfriend. But if you're going to end up in bed together, that is not an exploring personhood conversation. That is a prelude. That is a getting ready for a certain event. And therefore, the level of maturity and the level of understanding and the level of listening is completely different. Let me ask you something. Why is it that people who have lived together before they are married have an 80% higher divorce rate than people who have not lived together before they're married. Why is that? That's so curious to me. I mean, how else could you better prepare for marriage than to live with a person? How else could you know them any better? To have, to have gone uh, all through the relational dynamics, the everyday life, all of that makes sense that that marriage would certainly have a better chance. 80% higher divorce rate. You know why? Because they got things out of sequence. And because the important foundational aspects of their relationship never developed because sex was such an overwhelming priority, an overwhelming focus. God knew what he was doing when he preserved the sexual act for the bond of a faithful marriage. He knew what he was doing. And you know what? For the people who do practice that in the bond of a faithful marriage, listen to these statistics. I love these statistics. People, husbands were surveyed in a certain magazine. I think it was, I can't remember the magazine, Gentleman Magazine or something like that. I can't remember. Anyhow, ninety percent of those guys said that their wives were their best friends. Is that cool? Ninety percent. Now you wives may sit there and think that's just because the bum's too lazy to go out and make another friend. <laughs> and he may be, but it's still pretty cool, I think. My wife is my best friend. 
I'd rather spend time with her than anybody in the whole world. See? 90%. In another survey of people who were in committed relationships, faithful relationships, 85% of those people said that if they had it to do over again, they'd marry the same woman. Isn't that neat? See what it is. See the difference in dynamic for an ethical, moral treatment. Now, let me share one more thing with you. When we try to get out of a relationship, when Christians try to get out of a relationship, we try to confine it to the ethical, moral realm instead of going on to the third realm, which is the spiritual realm. Turn to chapter 19 of the Gospel of Matthew for a minute. Let me show you something. This is the scripture that most Christians get to, go to, in order to justify their thoughts about divorce and wonder whether or not they can get by on legal grounds. Okay? I mean, I'm just talking plainly to you here. I wonder if I can get out of this and it'll be okay with God. Maybe there's some moral caveat. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a, uh, a loophole. Remember that old story about W.C. Fields on his deathbed? Wasn't a believer, you know. But they walked in and W.C. Fields is in there looking through the Bible. They said, W.C., what are you doing looking through the Bible? And he said, looking for loopholes. Christians do that same thing. When they are sexually aroused and wanting to get out of their relationship in order to form a relationship to somebody else. But look at the plane on which Jesus puts that. It's not just a moral plane. It's something higher. Look at this. Some Pharisees came to him, testing him, saying, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? Now, right away, he puts it on the moral ethical plane. He speaks of the law. Look what Jesus said. He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now that is a sexual union, and that is an ideal. And by the way, let me just say this. There are several of you who come to me from time to time and say, Hunter, I realize that everybody is supposed to be like the Bible says we're supposed to be, but none of us live there. Why don't you start preaching just about where we live? Let me say this to you. We will never stop preaching ideals in this church. Jesus preached ideals. Now, there's always a way, no matter where we are, no matter how we fail, to go toward the ideal. But God forbid that we should ever take this scripture and start snipping away parts so that we can identify with it, and so therefore God could be just like us. God is not just like us. And therefore we will always preach what God intended so that we can hear what God intended, so that we can be imprinted with what God intended, so that we can go toward what God intended from where we are. And I realize some of us are in hurting places, and I know that. And all of us have failed. This, there are no holy people in this place. We're all beggars looking for the same bread. 
We're all sinners looking for the same healing. All of us have failed. But we will always preach ideals. Now look at what Jesus does. He does exactly that. He doesn't go toward the law. He goes back to the original ideal of God. Consequently, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses give us a command uh, to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, because of your hardness of heart, Jesus said. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. From the beginning, though, it was not so. Keep saying that over and over to yourself when you get in a situation. From the beginning, what was it supposed to be? From the beginning. Don't start from where you are. Start from the beginning. What was in the mind of God? Now watch this. From the beginning, it was not this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Does that mean, as many people take it, that... If a divorce occurs, you can never marry someone else? No. What, was, what Jesus was looking at was he was looking at people who had found a loophole, loophole in morality. They had found that it was okay ethically to divorce your wife on some ground in order to marry someone else. And so what happened was that there was life after life, just as there is in this culture, of serial polygamy. It wasn't even serial monogamy. Because you didn't mean to stay with that one person. It was serial malignant. If it doesn't work out, I'll just get a divorce here, make it all legal, make it all ethical, make it all moral, and go marry this person. And Jesus called a spade and spade and said, that's adultery. I mean, you might as well stay married because your intent is to have as many women as you want to marry. That's your intent. And he saw right through it. But the point here is that we can't get stuck at this moral level because there are always loopholes, there are always excuses, there are always rationalizations at this level. So therefore, go with me to one higher level. Now I'm speaking to you theologians because I want you to know that God's concern with our marriages and God's concern with our sexuality is not just to have a restriction, but it is to create a theological model. It is to create something that makes us fit for Him. Not just that makes us behave with integrity, but something that fits us for Him. God has so impressed on this world, in our physical lives, potential for spiritual maturity that if we can but see it, we will understand how God molds us spiritually at the same time He's molding us physically. Now, look at this. Uh, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with me. We will go into the third part of Origins Analysis, that to our spirits. And we will know that God's concern is not just a moral imperative, it is a theological model. Why should we confine our sexuality? Okay, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Now just look at the rest of this verse with me and think, think with me for a second. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Now, that's the whole verse. Now, think with me for a second. Do you remember taking a test as to your intelligence? Do you remember maybe men going uh, to take the test on the army? 
in the, when you're going into the army. And they would give you a grouping of things and say, tell us which thing doesn't belong. And they would say, screwdriver, saw, hammer, cat. Which thing doesn't belong? And you would write, cat. And they would say, you're in the army, son. That's all it took. Right? That's all it took. Look at this verse. Pick out the word in there that doesn't belong. I mean, not at first glance. All of those are sexual sins, aren't they? Except idolatry. But wait a minute. Idolatry has the same dynamic as a sexual sin. As a matter of fact, that that is in us that would make us chase after what we don't have physically is the same that is that that is in us that would make us chase after what we don't have spiritually and not go to the target that can fulfill all of our desires within God's will nor go to the God that can fulfill all our desires but chase and whore after other gods. Look at, look at uh, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Do you see the implications? What we do with our bodies has everything to do with our spirits and what we are getting ourselves ready for. Now let me tell you three things that God gets out of a faithful marriage sexual um, commitment. Number one, by going into a marriage and saying to another person, I need you. I need you. I am not complete without you. T turn uh, with me just a second to uh, uh, Genesis chapter 2. Start with verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. Now this is the only time in all of creation when God did not step back and say, It is good. Behold, it is good. The only time. And God says, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then on down, you can read the rest of it, but on down, the Lord God fashioned uh, into a woman the rib... And, and uh, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and they shall and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now let me, t now, let me ask you this. <clears throat> do you think that it has anything to do that God would give man a woman for his completion before they got to the temptation to the Garden of Eden? Where if man would have said, no, I don't want to be complete in myself, I want to need God, we would never have gotten in this mess. You understand the, the spiritual implications of that? It was a training ground that Adam could go to a, a woman and say, I need you. 
I, 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 I want your love and I will do whatever it takes to get that love. That's the same thing God wants from us. I need you. I'm not complete without you. It's not good for me to be alone. So what we model in our relationships with each other has everything to do with us saying, I am not complete in myself. I am not self-sufficient with God. Number two, it is important for us to know the consistency factor that is very, very, very important for a true, a, 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 a model with God. Look at, uh, uh, here it talks about being members of one another. Look at Ephesians 5. Let's turn to that passage right now. Just a couple more and I'll be done. Ephesians 5, starting with, with verse 21. Now this is, I tell you, this is a, <laughs> this is awful to say. <laughs> but I'm going to say it anyhow. This is one of the sexiest passages in all the scripture, as far as I'm concerned. I know all of you, you know, drool over a song of Solomon. You know, go ahead, that's okay. But to me, this is a passage about making love. This is what is required to make love. Number 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now that's a present imperative verb tense, and it means a continuous or repeated action on behalf of the one to whom it is commanded. I want to tell you, and you already know probably by experience, there is nothing more unnatural than for a wife to be subject to her husband. I mean, long term. Am I not right? Long term, there's nothing more unnatural. Why? Because part of the original curse was, the Bible says, and your desire shall be for your husband. That Hebrew word desire is only used in one other place. And that is when sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. It means your desire will be to overtake your husband, not to want your husband sexually but to overtake him, to have control of him. Therefore, it is not at all natural for a woman to want to be subject to her husband. But yet this is what Paul says. Wives, be subject to your husband. Holy cow! Let me show you the rest of this. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Present imperative verb tense. Continuous Repeated action. You sluggos don't even know how to... I don't know how to love. Boys are taught how to love. They're taught how to protect and how to provide. They're taught, they're taught, we're taught how to, how to play games and, and conquer women and, and chalk up things and to love. There's nothing natural about the vulnerability and the consistency that is required for men to love. Nothing natural. But the Bible says in verse 33 or 31 or whatever it is, so therefore, husbands, love your wives and wives, respect your husbands. That's making love. That's the work of making love. Making love isn't an act to relieve ourselves. Making love 
is an expression of laying down our lives for the other person. Look at here. Just as Christ gave himself up for the church. You see? The oneness. The self-giving. That's making love. That's making love. And yes, it is work. Yes, it is daily. Yes, it is. But you know what? What a joy. And when we are that way with our wives, when we lay our lives down for our wives, wives, when we respect our husband, even though you don't see much there to respect, don't you know that you can have that same attitude toward God? The Bible says, how can you feel that way toward God who you haven't seen if you can't love your brother who you have seen? You see? So God is training us for our relationship with Him. That, that, that men can love God and that women can respect God and submit to God. Whew. Powerful. Let me tell you one more thing. Okay? It is important to note that one of the things that God is trying to get us to do on our walk to maturity. And one of the one of the strongholds, or one of the things that will be sabotaged by this particular stronghold of stopping up short with just a sexual encounter is this. God is trying to get us to see that the fulfillment of a relationship takes the preparation of a relationship. Right now, we want gratification without any preparation. And God wants us to know that our fulfillment with Him, the times that He does act in our lives, need to be expressions of a long time of preparation with Him in order to achieve the maximum intimacy. Let me tell you a story. I haven't told any stories today. I'll tell you one story and then I'll quit. Um, Friday, um, our two older boys went to wrestling camp, and um, I told Beck I was going to take the day off. I put it on my calendar, and so, boy, that's what I did. I said, what do you want to do? She said, I don't know, anything you want to do. And I said, well, we saw our youngest with us, Joel, who is 10 years old. And I said, uh, let's go to the zoo. I've never been to the Sanford Zoo, Central Florida Zoo. She goes, great, that sounds like fun. So we did. We, we went out to eat, and then we went to the zoo, and we went and and uh, watched the birds sleep. And then we went over to the alligators and watched them sleep. And then we went over to the snakes and watched them sleep. And tigers sleep and lions sleep and so on and so forth. I mean, but it was fun. I mean, we were having fun and we were kidding around and goofing off. And it was really, I mean, it was really neat. Then we went up to the, to the sloth cage, the two-toed or three-toed sloth. I couldn't tell because it had his things underneath because he was sleepy. Couldn't even see his face. Couldn't even see what this thing looked like because it had his butt toward us. I mean, there's a big sloth behind right there. So we all stood there and read the sign, you know. Slowest animal in the jungle, it said. I don't know. It had a pretty close contest with the rest of them. I, I couldn't judge that one. It was too close. Slowest animal in the jungle. We're sitting there goofing off, you know, standing underneath this sloth behind. And... and and up comes this weekend dad. 
it was pitiful. The, the, the conversation all pointed toward this dad who had his little girl for Father's Day weekend. And he was trying frantically to entertain her. I mean, there she was with one of those uh, cherry icy things that was bigger than... I mean, just the thing was like this on her chest. I mean, she was carrying this thing around, you know. She had a big red thing around her thing. She was carrying this thing around. Had all the sweets that she could ever... She's probably in a sugar stupor when we saw her, but... She didn't look like she was having too good a time. But the dad, the dad was hopping around, hopping around. Isn't this fun? Isn't this great? Oh, well, now here we have the two-toed sloth, and, and uh, let's just get some pictures. And he starts snapping pictures of this sloth behind. Now think about it. How desperate must you be for a good time to be taking pictures of a sloth behind? I thought, I thought later... Yeah, I thought later how symbolic this is because most guys are the enact the embodiment of a sloth behind in a relationship. That's how we lose them in the first place. But that's another sermon for another time. And women, women, you're enjoying this way too much. But anyhow, and he kept saying, "Well, now your 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 three-toed sloth, your two-toed sloth is the slowest animal in the jungle." Says right here, and isn't it fun? But we'll always remember this, won't we? And then he jerked her away to the next exhibit. Oh, my heart just hurt. Oh, it just hurt. Here's a guy trying to cram into one day a relationship that was meant for every day. And Beck looked at me and said, "I wonder if that's how God feels with us." And I said. What do you mean? She said, you know, all week long we're out there with Mother Nature. And we give him an hour on the weekend. And in that time, he's supposed to cram in all the fun and the entertainment and the, and the, and the teaching and the, and the love that he has for us. I wonder if he doesn't get frustrated like a weekend warrior. <sighs> she always does that. Isn't that rich? Well, let me take you one step further. Even as it is impossible to cram a father-daughter relationship into one day, and even as it is impossible to cram a God-son or daughter relationship into one hour, so too is it, is, is it impossible to cram intimacy into one act. It is impossible. Please don't put that kind of pressure on your relationship. It is impossible. The intimacy... The joy, the friendship, the encouragement, the security, all comes in between the times. So that the times are always about the in-betweens. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to go on to maturity. Help us to know that we are being trained in our serious relationships for our times with you. That everything we do relationally and physically has a spiritual impact. Teach us to love. Teach us to love each other in a way that respects and encourages. In a way that is continuous and repeated and teach us to love you 
in just that way. So that, Lord God, when we come to you, you will not be a stranger. Nor will you have too much for us to hear in one small session. But we will be able to see you as the everyday person who loved us and who we loved. And we will be able to love each other in just that way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The service is ended. Go in peace.